0: Kids, I hope you have a a great time in the back. If you're remaining in the room, I'd encourage you to turn to Ezra chapter 9. Ezra chapter 9. This summer we've been um, looking at two books in the sort of middle of the Old Testament, uh, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, Most believe they were probably one book originally, Uh, but together they tell the story of a, a building project, God's people. Um, who were the Jews, uh, had been granted permission to return back to their home and to rebuild everything after having been exiled. They were overwhelmingly funded by the the Persian Empire and the Persian King. But as we've seen uh, all summer, God's hand has also been with them every single step of the way. Uh, Their rebuilding project came in three waves. The first was under a leader named Zerubbabel, And he came back and he rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem. He reinstituted all of the rituals of worship as well. And if you were with us last week, we started looking at the second wave that came under the leadership of a man named Ezra. Uh, This was probably 75 years after that first wave. And Ezra's mission was a little different. His mission was to teach the scriptures, to, to rebuild the spiritual hearts of uh, the people of God. And it's during this second wave that we probably come to what is perhaps the most challenging passage in the book of Ezra, um, certainly one that is most controversial. And it all centers around a moral crisis uh, that Ezra had to face very early on. And it may at best leave you scratching your head. It may at worst uh, leave you a little bit offended. But before I read the passage, I want us to to always remember something that's important. Whenever we study um, something that happened either in in biblical history or just history in general, uh, C.S. Lewis used to warn against what he called a chronological snobbery. Chronological snobbery. And what he meant by that is that we all tend to have this belief that we have it better and we know better than everyone that has come before us. And that leads to a certain snobbery. We uh, Now, I will concede, some things are certainly better. Um, indoor plumbing is certainly better than the ways we had to do things way before this. So there certainly are things better, but we don't always know better, and we don't always have it better. Uh, many of you know I teach um, uh, ninth grade world history at a local school, and I talk about this very thing uh, with my students each year before the, before the semester begins um, and I tell them we're gonna, we're gonna some stud- study some things that uh, have happened in the past and the tendency we all have is to be very quick to judgment whenever we, we study history. We think how on earth could these old people have thought the way they did? How could they have acted the way they did? How barbaric? Um, how could they have been so blind or so arrogant? Uh, to act in the way that they did. But then I remind my students that someday someone will say the very same thing about you and about our time. How could they have acted the way they did? How could they have thought the way they did? How could they have been so blind or ignorant to their blind spots? And don't get me wrong, it's right at times to look back and condemn things that were not right, Uh, or things that were immoral, but we always have to remember that we don't always know what it's like to walk a mile in the shoes of those that have gone before us. And so we ought to approach all of these things with a certain measure of chronological humility, with the understanding that we have blind spots too. And I think that's important as we consider our passage this morning, So I'm going to be reading all of Ezra chapter 9, which is um, uh, 15 verses. Uh, But really, I'm going to talk about the remaining chapters of the book of Ezra as well. So Ezra chapter 9, verses 1 to 15. You can follow along in the screens or in your bulletin as well if you don't have a copy of God's word. Ezra chapter 9. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said... The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands." And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak, and I pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting, with my garment and my cloak torn, and I fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying, O my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens." From the days of our fathers to this day we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands to the the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame as it is today. But now for a brief moment favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within his holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servant, the prophets, saying, the land that you are entering to take possession of it is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations that they have filled it from end to end with their their uncleanness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land, and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever." And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have, pun- have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there should be no remnant nor any to escape? O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are left a remnant that is escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. This is God's word. Father, thank you so much for uh, just the power of your word. We reflected on that last week, Lord, and uh, the power of your word to uh, convict us, to uh, assure us, to Uh, lead us into worship, into awe and affection for you, Lord. And so we pray uh, that the power of your word would speak to us in the next few minutes, Lord, that as we meditate on your word, Lord, we would hear your voice and we would leave here changed as a result. We pray all this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Have you ever uh, started a job, a new job? and you got into that job, maybe it's the first week or two, and you realize that it's a bit more than you bargained for, or at least a little different than what you were expecting. Well, I think Ezra rolled into town expecting that his job was just to teach the Scriptures. He was a good teacher. He was a scribe. He was an expert in the law. And so he had to imagine, I'm just going to go and I'm going to teach the Scriptures. That was the mission that had been given to him. Uh, By Artaxerxes, the the Persian king. It was the the mission that was given to him by God. Uh, But very early in the job, poor Ezra was struck with a very big issue, and it probably had to feel like it was more than he had bargained for. So, this morning, what I want us to do is to look at the issue. What is the sort of moral crisis at hand here? And then look at Ezra's response to it. And while the the response might raise your eyebrows a little bit, I still think that there is uh, a lot in this passage that teach us uh, about our theme that we've been looking at all summer. How does God rebuild our hearts? I think this passage has a lot to say about that. But let's start with the issue, and it really is outlined for us um, in verses one and two. Ezra gets on site. And he learns that some of the earlier returnees, those that that came back in the first wave, those that that came back under Zerubbabel, uh, that they had married women who were foreigners or were called people of the land. And these marriages were numbering well over 100 marriages. And the priests, the, the, the chief leaders of this community, uh, they were the ones that were to be most set apart, and yet they were the ones that were most guilty. Ezra learns about this, and he is mortified. He is appalled. That word keeps coming up in the passage. It tells us he tears his clothes. He begins a fast, which is he uh, even pulls out hair of his head and his beard, which is an ancient sign of grief, and he is inconsolable for days. And everybody can see it. Everybody sees that Ezra is upset, so something must have gone terribly wrong. And so you might be wondering as you read this, what what, what really is the issue here? Why is this a, a moral crisis? Well, in Exodus chapter 34, God very explicitly forbids his people from entering into marriages and bearing children with foreigners, with people of the land. Uh, In Deuteronomy chapter 7, uh, Moses sort of doubles down on this as they're about to enter the promised land, reiterating this prohibition. And even if you go to 1 Kings, um, it is repeated there all over again. So you might be wondering, why would God command this specific thing? Well, the issue was never one of sort of ethnicity or racial superiority. That's where some people get it wrong. It was never an issue with that. And you can prove that because Moses himself married a foreign woman, Um, Jesus Christ, our Savior. If you look at the lineage that the Gospels tell us, you see two foreign women in his lineage. He has uh, Ruth in his lineage. Ruth was a, a Moabitess. He has Rahab in his lineage. Um, She was a a Canaanite. So so the the terms of ethnicity was never really the issue. What the issue was was really an issue of the heart. You see, God was passionate about the purity of his people, and he was jealous for them, and jealous in the, the most righteous of ways. He was jealous for their undevoted love and affection. Really at issue here is idolatry, the worship of these foreign gods, and that idolatry was strictly forbidden from the very beginning for God's people. And so the thinking went like this. If a Hebrew married a Canaanite or another foreigner, another people of the land, whether they married a Canaanite man or woman, that Canaanite would bring with him or her the foreign gods that their people worshipped, and as a result of that, the faith of the Hebrews would gradually erode away. This is called syncretism in the Scriptures that really is a principle that's true even today, that we sort of naturally blend in with those we surround ourselves with, especially those who are the closest to us. And so even today, the Apostle Paul warns Christians in the New Testament to avoid being what he calls unequally yoked, uh, to avoid marrying someone that is outside of the faith. Now, why why is this so true? Well, marriage, we all know, is the sort of most intimate and precious of relationships. And, and in marriage, after a while, you start to take on the, the peculiarities and even... Uh, The mannerisms of your spouse. Have you ever seen uh, married couples that have been together for years and not only do they talk alike and they act alike, but they even start to look alike? Have you ever seen this before? It sometimes happens. And so the point is, if we don't marry someone who shares our faith, it is very easy for our faith to over time gradually erode away. And so this prohibition on marriage isn't really about ethnicity um, or some sort of racial superiority, but it's about protecting the undying devotion and love of God's people for their God. Now, things are a little different today, but idolatry is still a big deal for you and I, because idolatry really at its heart is anything that gets in the way— of our pure love for God. Anything that gets in the way could be considered to be an idol. We don't worship pagan deities. We don't have little figurines or sacred objects that we worship in our homes, but we have no shortage of idols in our world today. Of course, there's a great temptation for all of us to worship money. That was true in the Old Testament. It's true in the New Testament. It is true today. It's something that, de- de- that desires and, and comes after our loves and our affections. We tend to give ourselves to things like achievement and success. We pursue them at all costs. We pursue things like fame and, and notoriety and reputation, and we're willing to do all sorts of things to get those. And none of those things are wrong in and of themselves. But when we love those things more than we love our God, they then become idols. They disorder our loves, and we wind up worshiping them instead of worshiping God, and so for in many ways this is Ezra's um, golden calf moment. Remember, poor old Moses goes up on Mount Sinai and he comes down with the Ten Commandments, and the people have melted down all their gold, they're made it into a golden calf, and they're worshiping that golden calf, uh, violating the very commandments that Moses is holding in his hands. Well, this is Ezra's golden calf moment. He returns to teach the people the scriptures, only discover that even the priests have married foreigners and they've set themselves up for all sorts of idolatry. Now, again, on the outside, you and I and our lives might look a little different, but we are really not all that different when you get down to it. We are just as prone to give ourselves to lesser things We're just as prone to let our loves become disordered. We chase after idols in the world that is around us. We love stuff and fame and money more than we love our God who has redeemed us. We are just as prone to idol worship as they were in the book of Ezra. So the question becomes, what happens when God uncovers it, like he does in our passage, like he does in our lives? What happens when God uncovers it, when he exposes it? So that leads us to sort of Ezra's response here, and this is where our passage gets a little tricky. Ezra's really left with two options once he discovers this. He either allows the marriages to stay with this huge risk of idolatry and syncretism and allows the same errors to happen that got the people exiled in the very first place. That's option number one. Option number two is that he simply dissolves these marriages and these spouses, these women, and these children uh, would be left vulnerable as a result of it. It feels like an impossible choice for Ezra. Uh, He's clearly, uh, God is clearly against idolatry, but God is also clearly against the dissolution of families. So it feels like an impossible choice. But in the end, Ezra receives a suggestion and decides to dissolve the marriages. And so some 113 families are broken apart, Uh, a painful surgery is performed, and and Ezra is clearly upset about it. From the start to the finish, he's upset about it. He's inconsolable about it. And if you keep reading in the book of Exodus, this group divorce happens one day in the pouring rain as if the, the heavens themselves are weeping over what has happened. And God seems to remain silent about the whole thing from start to finish. All of it is sad, all of it is heartbreaking, all of it is gut-wrenching, which is exactly what idolatry always brings us to. It's exactly where it leads us all. And yet, despite this sort of controversial decision and this difficult section, I do think there's some really valuable things for you and I to glean when it comes to God revealing our own idolatry and God revealing our own sinfulness. Because I think what Ezra does here, particularly in our passage that we read this morning, what Ezra demonstrates is what true repentance is really all about. The Bible's clear, and we see it in our passage, the Bible's clear that our God is a jealous God. And it's not a sinful jealousy, but one that is pure and righteous. And that means that a part of God's rebuilding project in our hearts is to strip our idols away from us. And sometimes he does it in difficult ways. Sometimes this surgery is very painful because God is in the business of opening up our eyes to the ways that we give ourselves to lesser things, the way we build our lives on lesser things, And when he does, the only appropriate response that we should have is one of repentance, to repent of our idolatry, to truly recognize our sin for what it is, to own it and to turn and to walk in the other direction. Now, I don't have to tell you this is not our natural inclination as human beings. Uh, Whenever my wife graciously and kindly confronts me about something uh, that I have done in the home or or outside, my sinful inclination is uh, not to repent, not to recognize it, not to own it. What do we all do? We want to minimize our sin. We say things, well, that's not really that big of a deal. Uh, We want to blame shift. Well, I only did this because of this. Or we make excuses. Well, I was I was really tired. Or, you know, I just had a really hard day at work. Or I've been really stressed with life at this moment. Or we might be willing to acknowledge it and even say, I'm sorry. But we do things like, oh, yeah, I- I'm sorry for that. We're good now, right? We just want to move on as quickly as we possibly can. But, friends, none of this is, is true repentance that we see in the Scriptures but but look at what Ezra does in our passage. It's remarkable. This sin isn't even Ezra's sin directly, and yet he still sits with it, and he mourns over it. He even runs to God with his sin. He says in verse 7, oh my God, I am ashamed and blushed to lift my face to you, My God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up into the heavens. See, he's not minimizing sin here. Instead, he's recognizing that this sin is real and that the guilt is even greater than he realizes and the people realize and that it threatens to undo them as a people unless God comes to the rescue. In verse 10, he says, And now, O our God, what shall we do after this? For we have forsaken your commands. You see, he's he's owning the sin. He's being specific with what has been done. He is being transparent, and he is being humble before God. Friends, we talk a lot about repentance in the Scriptures, we talk a lot about it in church, because repentance really is one of the first initial steps in the work of the gospel in our lives. You see, we talk a lot about grace, we talk a lot about forgiveness, and we ought to, but before God's grace and forgiveness can mean anything at all, we first need to recognize and confess our own sin. But repentance not, isn't just the initial steps of the life of faith. Repentance ought to be the life of the believer every step of the way as God rebuilds our hearts. As he rebuilds our hearts, he reveals our sin to us. He, he opens our eyes, our blind eyes, to the reality of things. He sometimes smashes the idols that we worship in our lives. And so the footsteps of the gospel, every single step of the way, is repentance and faith. So our response in this rebuilding project is to daily repent, to own up to our own mess, and to seek to live lives more in line with God's design. But Ezra powerfully shows us one more thing that's important to do with our uh, repentance, and that is, we see here, that he recalls the faithfulness and the grace of God. He says in verse 9, For we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love. You see, even in the midst of our sin, God has not forsaken us, but he has extended his steadfast love to us. Friends, this is best embodied in our Savior, Jesus Christ, one who is God with us. He is God's steadfast love embodied for us, and through his sacrifice, we repent of our sins, and God begins his rebuilding project in our hearts. And so as we depart from this passage, we might scratch our heads about the dissolution of marriages, and we might scratch our heads about exonomy, this marriage outside of the community, but what we can walk away with is the importance of always practicing repentance, of owning up to our sin, at some points even sitting with it, and letting God reorder our loves as we confess our idolatry before him. But it doesn't just end there, because with every step of the way, we remind ourselves that our God is faithful, he is gracious, and he is abundant and steadfast in his faithfulness to us. And that is the beauty of the gospel. Let's pray.